If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Listen closely. That's not just paint rolling on a wall. It's artistry. A master painter carefully applying Benjamin Moore Regal Select Eggshell with deftly executed strokes. The roller, lightly cradled in his hands, applying just the right amount of paint. Mm, it's like hearing poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How roaring were the Roaring Twenties for ordinary Britons? Did views of the British Empire change after the First World War? And what caused the economic woes of the 1930s? In our latest Everything You Want to Know episode, we're tackling interwar Britain. Speaking to Eleanor Evans, Matt Holbrook, Professor of Cultural History at the University of Birmingham, answers your top questions on British life between two devastating world wars. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on the History Extra podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've looked through some questions and as we've seen, we've got a lot. So thank you to everybody who sent them in. We also look at the most popular questions put to Google in these episodes. And to start us off, we are going to start very broad with this popular question put to Google. Um, Matt, can we define the period we're talking about here? What, what is the terminology of interwar Britain? What does that mean? Yeah, of course. And it's a really interesting place to start because... The terms, the words, the phrases that we use to define a period are are not neutral. They actually do a lot of work in investing that period with meaning. They they kind of carry an interpretation of what how we might think about the 1920s and 1930s or the character of that period. So just for example, to take to take the term that you've been using, Eleanor, when we talk about interwar Britain, actually what we're doing is defining a period between 1918 and 1939 really by by what it's not 
but we're kind of suggesting that we should think about the 1920s and the 1930s as a kind of gap between the supposedly more important events of the two world wars that sit by the side of those decades. And that's interesting. And that's really a very important way, I suppose, a dominant way that we think about this period. But it does rely on a kind of hindsight that was not available to Britons living through that period. It wasn't really until the late 1930s that it became clear that this would be that this period would be bracketed by two world wars. Then you would be able to talk about it as the interwar period. So in that sense, talking about interwar Britain, I think, is problematic in lots of ways. It defines the 1920s and 1930s by what it's not rather than what it was. So it assumes that this is a period that in some sense was was unchanging, that we can think about as sharing common characteristics. Whereas actually, if we start to look at the history in a bit more detail, we might want to think more carefully about how the Britain of 1939 was different from the Britain of 1918, about the differences between the 1930s and the 1920s. So already, these are quite small examples, but you can see how these shorthand phrases, these shorthand descriptors of a period, actually do a lot of interpretive or analytic work for us. Famously, Robert Graves and Alan Hodge, in their contemporary social history, The Long Weekend, do something similar. And that idea of a weekend, I think, starts to point towards some of the other terms that we use to characterise, particularly the 1920s. It suggests the kind of mood of frivolity, of hedonism, of living for the moment that would then pass. And that taps in quite nicely to the idea that we're equally familiar with, of thinking about the 1920s, for example, as the Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties as a moment of release, of reaction, of hedonism, of hysteria that follows the follows the, the austerity, the hardships of the Great War. And that's interesting, again, because it points us towards the way that we think about particular historical periods, it comes from hindsight, um, is often derived from different forms of mass culture, of the titles of films and novels and so on and so forth. The idea of the Roaring Twenties wasn't necessarily current in the 1920s itself, although there were similar terms doing the rounds. Um, the Jazz Age, uh, the Restless Twenties, the Careless Twenties, and so on and so forth. So I think, I mean, this is a very long-winded answer to your question, Eleanor, but we can see straight away that, that just simply the way that we talk about a period, the way that we define a period, is beginning to impose a particular kind of meaning on it. Okay, so if we can't use any any single term of, of the ones you mentioned perhaps to pin down this this period definitively that sort of um overview you just gave us gives us a really nice introduction to this period um and if we can sort of rock it back to the start and you mentioned that the people living at the very start of this period obviously don't have the benefit of knowing what's to come um they've just lived through this devastating conflict what what did britain look like at the very start of this period we're talking about that's a really good question i suppose often when when historians use the phrase post-war Britain, they usually, they're invariably talking about the period after the Second World War. But if we start to move back in time, it's really useful, really important for us to acknowledge and to see the ways in which the period after 1918 through to, I mean, maybe through to the late 1920s, early 1930s, is itself a period that we can define as post-war. And when we start to look at the social or the cultural or the political history of Britain in this period, what we begin to see 
is a world that is developing very much in the shadows of the Great War, the legacies of, of the experience that has gone before. And there are different ways that we can see this, but I think maybe one of the most useful ways of characterising Britain in this period is as a nation individually and collectively striving, struggling to come to terms with the social, the cultural, the political, the individual, the emotional effects of the experience of the Great War. And that experience and that struggle to to come to terms with the Great War, to rebuild and to move on, takes different forms. On the one hand, we might see it on an individual level as the struggle to come to terms with the experience of military service, the experience of injury, the experience of shell shock. We might see it as the experience, the struggle to come to terms with loss, both individually within families and workplaces or social clubs, but also collectively as a nation. But that process of that process of coming to terms with the legacy of the war is also a political one. It's about reconstructing different political forms after the disruptions of the war and after, in particular, the passage of the Representation of the People Act and the extension of the franchise to all men and to women over 30 in 1918. Sitting alongside all of this, there's also a process of social and economic reconstruction, of managing the transition from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy, of moving demobilised men back into the workplace, and of enacting the necessary social and political reforms to adapt to to smooth the transition from war to peace. Most obviously, I guess, through the provision of pensions to former servicemen and their dependents. So really, it's quite helpful if we think about, think about the extent to which the Great War disrupted or challenged British society and culture and politics. We can characterise the war as a moment that really threw British society and culture and politics up into the air, broke it into a thousand pieces. And then the aftermath of the war then is sort of characterised, we might think of it as a period when these pieces are beginning to come down to the earth again, are beginning to settle and beginning to recompose themselves into a wider whole. But there's a sense of there's a sense of the need to reconstruct and rebuild. And the tension there is that no one is really sure, or there's not really necessarily agreement, on whether the emphasis should be on restoring the pre-Great War order of Edwardian and Georgian Britain, or building a new world, building a future world or a brave new world by embracing the possibilities of modernity. So lots going on there. And I, I think it's really interesting that it's absolutely not a settled process. It's, it's going to be, uh, you know, iterative is going to be happening and, and not in a linear way. Um, I guess you've outlined a few there, but can we go into a few more of those challenges a little more, particularly in the 1920s? You know, the societal sense of loss and how people are looking at empire, how they are rebuilding. Can we talk a little more about those factors? Yeah, loss is a really useful place to start, a really important place to start. Over a million men from Britain and its empire die during the Great War. And that doesn't necessarily mean that those old cliches of the lost generation ring true, but it does mean that individually and collectively, Britain has to come to terms with the experience of loss and the devastating experience of loss on a mass scale. I think it's no accident then that in many ways the most ubiquitous architectural legacy of the 1920s is the War Memorial, 
simple crosses or obelisks or plaques on street corners, on the walls of churches, in workplaces, on village greens and so on and so forth. These memorials are really a kind of materialization of the desperate struggle to come to terms with and to explain and justify, crucially, the loss of so many men, of so many loved ones during the Great War. So the challenge is, I think, understanding what had happened, giving the loss of life an acceptable meaning, and then finding ways to commemorate the dead and to move on. That's why the rhetoric of the war memorial is so important. It rings hollow to us today, but when you read the inscriptions on war memorials, one of the most striking things is the way in which the war is presented as a victory, a victory in a war that was fought in defence of civilization, and in which British men demonstrated the values of heroism, patriotism, nation, sacrifice, and so on and so forth. And we might, from our position in the start of the 21st century, be, be cynical about these sentiments, be cynical about the line about it's a sweet and seemly thing to die for one's country. But in the context of the early 1920s, this kind of language, these ideas are really important because they give loss, they give the experience of loss an acceptable meaning. If you're grieving for the loss of a parent, of a loved one, of a child, you don't want to be, you don't want to be told that that death has been futile in a war fought for nothing. You need to find solace and some sort of consolation to explain that loss. And that's why memorials take the, take the form that they do. One way of thinking about the process of memorialization and the set-piece events that, that go around it, the celebration of Armistice Day, for example, is as a form of propaganda, a moment at which the official meaning of the Great War is stated very, very loudly and very clearly. The interesting thing, though, of course, is that that meaning, the meaning of the loss, the meaning of the Great War, is never settled and is never necessarily accepted. So we don't know, for example, if we look at the crowds, if we look at the photographs of the crowds gathered in silence on Armistice Day throughout the 1920s and the 1930s, it's impossible to tell what they're thinking as they're listening to the speech, as they're, they're, they're pausing during the two-minute silence. Certainly amongst radical newspapers and on the left, there's a growing attempt to suggest that Armistice Day should be remembered as not as a moment of sacrifice for a just cause, but as a moment to remember and to reflect upon the exploitation of ordinary Britons by a capitalist imperialist elite. So the meaning of the war then is, is up for grabs in the 1920s. Because the war memorial is only one strand of this process of trying to come to terms with the war, trying to explain what it had been for. And it sits alongside other attempts to understand what's happened. The famous war poetry of Sassoon or Owen, the novels of Blunden or Graves and so on and so forth. The writing of Vera Britton or other women who kind of served through the Great War. We can see that search for meaning also in the publication of official histories, the making of documentary films that try and reconstruct particular battles during the war, um, the development of a kind of a genre of romantic fiction set during the war in, that's published in the 1920s. I think the crucial thing to think about this, the crucial thing to recognise, is that the way that we think about the Great War today as unnecessary, as futile, as a bloody, horrific waste of life, is derived 
quite closely from the writings of a particular group of of public school educated subaltern soldier poets, Sassoon, Owen, Blunden, and then Britain. That way of thinking about the Great War is not necessarily a dominant one in the 1920s and only really begins to acquire public prominence after what's called the war books boom in the period after 1928. And it's in that period, those those short few years after 1928, the most of what we think, think of now as the classics of Great War literature are published. And this is the moment then at which a kind of disillusionment with the experience of war a sense of the futility of war really begins to take hold. But even then, this isn't a complete shift in thinking about the war. It's hugely controversial. The, the work of Sassoon or Aldington is hugely controversial. And for every author that insists on the futility of war, there's a kind of reaction, often from writers associated with the political right, who insist on the legitimacy of the sacrifice, the necessity of war, and of the heroism of those who lived and fought through it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. That's so interesting and really does um, reflect certainly, certainly what I've learned in the past of people's opinions shifting towards that futility. We've got a great question from History EHC on Instagram, which asks about another shift in opinion. Did people's opinions of the empire shift and did popular culture reflect this shift at all? Yeah, that is a really good question. One of the things that we lose sight of often is that the British Empire reaches its physical peak uh, that reaches the limit of its physical size in after the, the Treaty of Versailles. So the 1920s and the 1930s is really, in many ways, the heyday of the British Empire. What's really interesting, though, is the way that empire is thought of cuts in very different directions. On the one hand, 
there's a strong sense that the Great War was an imperial war and that Britain's victory was due to due to the kind of collaboration, the cooperation of colonies and dominions across the world, from the troops of the West Indian Regiment through to the heroic service of the Canadians or the Anzacs, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps during the war. So there's a kind of a celebration of empire and a recognition of how victory could not have come had it not been for the support of troops from across Britain's empire or the work of black and Asian sailors in Britain's merchant navy, for example. On the other hand, there's a distinct shift in the way that empire is understood in the 1920s and the 1930s. Something like the British Empire Exhibition of 1924, for example, the the exhibition that Wembley Stadium is built as part of the grounds for, is designed deliberately as a celebration of Britain's imperial power, of the way that empire is absolutely essential to British society, politics, culture, economy. There are some grand celebrations and pageants in the arena. There's a fun fair, and there are pavilions created to show the economic and the social and the cultural contributions of places like Hong Kong, of the Gold Coast, of the Indian subcontinent, and, and so on and so forth. So it looks in many ways like the British Empire exhibition is, is a kind of celebration of Britain's empire. In lots of ways, it's actually a defensive moment, a moment of anxiety. The emphasis on the centrality of empire and imperial raw materials and imperial goods to the British economy is really mobilised, it's animated by a sense of economic crisis in Britain in the aftermath of the Great War. So there's a sense of the British economy is beginning to stagnate, that European competition is intensifying, and that to address that competition, Britain has to cultivate imperial trade and imperial cooperation. So there's an anxiety that underpins the Empire Exhibition. There's also, as part of this, a change in the way that empire is talked about. It's not definite and it's not absolute, but there's a repudiation in many quarters of the kind of jingoism and the patriotism and the rhetoric of conquest that characterised Victorian ideas of empire. This is the moment, really, the ideas of the empire as a commonwealth, as an imperial family, as a unit described by cooperation and fraternity really begins to take hold. And the emphasis is is no longer on military conquest and dominion, but is instead on providing the benefits, developing the benefits of civilization, technology, modernity, public health, sanitation across the globe. The flip side of course, is that there are very good reasons for attitudes towards empire to be defensive and anxious in the 1920s, because this is the period at which Britain's imperial power really comes under sustained political and often revolutionary challenge, most notably through the War of Independence in Ireland, on mainland Britain's doorstep, but also through growing demands for self-determination in India, Egypt, Iraq, and so on and so forth. So empire is important, and as, but as much as though there are attempts to redefine empire based around values of civilization and modernity, the British Empire is still effectively maintained by military force and the brutal use of new forms of modern technology, like aerial photography or aerial bombing or the machine gun, for example. 
And the question about whether empire, I suppose the question is really about to what extent did empire come home to ordinary Britons in the 1920s and the 1930s? And that's really, it's a really interesting one. I think one of the best ways to answer that is to think about how empire, imperial peoples, imperial products, were a ubiquitous part of the backdrop for everyday life. So empire provided the setting for for feature films, popular novels and romantic fiction, news of imperial events uh, or of imperial successes or of innovations like pioneering flights across Britain's African territories, for example. That was the stuff of newspaper headlines and breathless tabloid newspaper coverage. And in the background, imperial products, packets of tea carrying imperial branding, were would have been everywhere as well. I mean, the issue is, being able to point to the ubiquity of empire in society, politics and culture isn't necessarily the same as saying that it was important to ordinary Britons. Often we don't know the extent to which ordinary Britons registered the existence of empire or how they thought about it. There are some fantastic comments, sort of slightly snippy comments about the British Empire exhibition though, um, which suggests that one of the reasons, the main reason people went there wasn't simply to celebrate the empire, uh, but to have a drink in the planter's bar, as PJ Woodhouse put it, um, or to go on the dodgems as a character in a Noel Coward play described it at one point. So it's a really interesting question. I suppose the other thing that I I would say about this as well, which is something that we also often lose sight of, is that the empire came home in really important ways in shaping the population of British towns and cities in this period. Now, we often associate migration to Britain from the Commonwealth with the period after, after Windrush with the 1950s and the 1960s. But the Great War and the transition from war to peace had a dramatic effect on the black and Asian population of cities like London or Liverpool or South Shields or Cardiff, for example. And this continues in the 1920s as the population of port cities is is continually swelled by the presence of black and Asian sailors passing through or deciding to put out home in places like London or Liverpool by the presence of students or musicians or performers or or workers who've arrived in Britain from places like Sierra Leone or Jamaica, for example. So the population of Britain in the late 1910s and early 1920s is, in particular places, exceptionally multicultural. Now, this isn't I mean, in many ways, this is a history that that we need to recognise and it's something to celebrate looking back. But we also need to recognise the profound racism and hostility that black and Asian men and women experienced in the 1910s and the 1920s. The riots of 1919, which broke out in primarily in port towns and cities across Britain, were in many ways race riots fueled by competition within labour market competition within the shipping industry, but often played out as attacks on black and Asian sailors by white mobs in that period. And in the aftermath of the 1919 riots, there are attempts on the part of the British government to instate what we might think of as a formal or informal colour bar. 
um, to make it harder for black and Asian Britons to work or move or settle in metropolitan Britain, to deport those who have no documentation, even if they're British citizens. And that all sits alongside a campaign, particularly on amongst populist politicians and the right-wing press, a kind of a vicious campaign against vicious campaign against what they present as the problem of Britain's alien or coloured minorities. So the population of post-war Britain is multicultural, but their position within British society and British politics is, is precarious and embattled. I don't think it's any accident that this is the period when we first start the 1920s and the 1930s as the period when we start to see uh, men and women from West Africa, for example, or the West Indies, men like Ladipo Solanke or women like Una Marson, beginning to mobilise around a kind of anti-racist, anti-colonial politics. And often that political mobilisation reflects issues around imperial governance in West Africa, but often it's prompted by these men and women's experiences of racism and the coloured bar on the streets and in the public spaces of Britain. That's such an interesting look at um, a demographic that I think is often so whitewashed, for want of a better term, I suppose. Uh, and I guess, you know, another popular understanding of the post-World War One legacy is the effect that it had on women's lives. Now, we had a lot of questions about this, so I'm sorry if we can't address all of them specifically, but broadly, I suppose, people would like to know, did women's lives go back to, quote, normal between the wars, or how did it continue changing? And obviously the issue of enfranchisement of women that came on hot on the heels of this conflict as well. I mean, obviously there are significant changes in the political position of women in the aftermath of the Great War. The representation of the People Act in 1918 enfranchises women over 30, and then a further piece of legislation in 1928 gives women the vote on the same terms as men. So the, 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 the age of, of voting is 21 from that point onwards. So the election of 1929 is the first election at women vote, British women vote on the same terms as men. That's hugely important for politics and for women's lives because what it does is create an electorate a new mass electorate that politicians have to speak to and address if they're going to be successful so one of the ways that you see that is the way that political parties develop new forms of campaigning new forms of political language deliberately addressed to women, often in stereotypical terms through their role as householders or mothers or managers of a domestic budget. But there is a kind of sense, a really important sense, that this is a constituency, a constituency that has to be addressed and catered for in this period. It used to be the case, I think, that historians assumed that the representation of the People Act was a kind of high point in the development of women's political position. That's not necessarily true, I think. There is, there is an active feminist movement in the 1920s and the 1930s, lobbying, active in attempting to improve women's lives across the realms of family, of work, of law, of public life, and so on and so forth. What we do see, though, is a split in the feminist movement, a growing division between that kind of older school of equality feminism 
a sort of women's movement which is seeking to secure rights for women on the same terms as men, a kind of a sort of formal equality. And that might be that might be a politics that focuses on the franchise, on challenging the marriage bar that requires women to resign from particular professions when they get married, or thinking about things like equal pay. Alongside that, though, there's a kind of new feminism associated with activists with figures like Eleanor Rathbone that mobilises increasingly around the, the task of securing improvements in the position of women as women. So that's about working with this sense of women's role within the family or the household to argue for improvements in things like maternal welfare, mother and child clinics, access to birth control, and so on and so forth. That kind of new feminism is often seen as conservative, as kind of accepting women's, accepting stereotypical ideas of women's social and cultural position. But it's enormously successful in making the case for improvements in a whole range of different areas. I suppose the other thing that we see in women's position in this period is that, particularly in some parts of the country, there are, there are changes in the occupational opportunities available to women. This is the period at which working class women move out of reject domestic service in large numbers, really because they're able to find new opportunities in developing areas of the economy, in clerical work, in factory labour, and so on and so forth. And these opportunities opportunities as shorthand typists or stenographers or factory hands they're enormously important and they they attract women away from domestic service partly because they're better paid but also because because they carry much less of the surveillance and the kind of constraints that comes with being a living domestic servant in a middle class or upper class family so one of the things that we see you know there's a reason that the flapper is a kind of stereotypical icon of the 1920s and the 1930s, that the modern woman becomes such a prominent figure. And that reason, I think, is because because there are tangible improvements in women's labour market participation that in turn give young women in particular growing personal freedom, growing economic independence, that allow them to make greater contributions to the household economy and in turn allows them to build independent lives um, and to take advantage of the opportunities associated with new forms of mass production and mass culture. So clearly a changing picture there there for women, lots happening in their lives. If we can pick up on the example you gave there of the flapper, obviously in popular imagination, a figure um, defined by fashion and perhaps we can broaden that out to talk about how you know the the legacy of the great war these global influences coming into britain at this time how was this affecting fashion in interwar britain the other way of thinking about the figure of the flapper is so the 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 stereotypical image of the flapper the bobbed haircut the dress cut above the knee the silk stockings and so on and so forth there are different ways of thinking about that figure on the one hand, we can kind of see here the effects of new forms of mass culture associated with the United States on the aspirations and the self-presentation of ordinary women in Britain. 
this is the period when ordinary working class women through their experience of watching Hollywood films at the cinema, through their experience of reading cinema film magazines or fashion magazines, can want to be as glorious as Theda Barra, that kind of icon, that American icon of the silver screen. So there's a sort of, there's a transformation of the imaginative horizons of young women in this period that comes through their ability to see these glamorous different lives through cinema or through popular magazines and the popular press. Now, those fashionable figures, those fashion icons, are not necessarily always American. They can equally be a sort of a British debutant as a film star from California. But they're an important part of everyday life in this period. But the other thing that's going on in the figure of the flapper is there are some quite prosaic changes in forms of economic production, retail and shopping underpinning all of this. If many women during the 1920s and 1930s have greater disposable income, they're able to spend that income to afford access to new forms of fashionable clothing or fashionable cosmetics, powder puffs and lipstick, for example, because of new forms of mass production that make fashion more accessible, that make fashionable clothes more accessible and that make makeup more accessible. The best example of this is through the massive expansion of Woolworths as a high street, a ubiquitous presence on the British high street, a chain store that begins life in America, but by the end of the 1930s is really everywhere in Britain, or by the growing success, the growing popularity of boots and their popular makeup ranges. So there are cultural changes, which are about films and magazines and so on. But there are also changes in the landscape of shopping, the way that fashion, that clothes can be mass produced, the way that makeup can be mass produced, that make these things much more accessible. And really, it's that combination of cultural, economic, industrial change that means that by the early 1930s, observers like J.B. Priestley can talk about the growing visibility of, of factory girls dressed up like Hollywood actresses, for example. And so you're mentioning the influence of, of Hollywood in this era, potentially increasing as the, these decades progress. We've got this question from Idle Vignette on Instagram. Were there any other unique forms of entertainment that developed in this time? And what do they sort of tell us about this period? That is a really, that's a really good question. The idea of unique is always, a, is always a problem. There are forms of entertainment that we often associate very strongly with the 1920s and the 1930s. That might be the cinema but it could equally be popular romantic fiction, the wireless, the dance hall, the suburban palais to dance, and so on and so forth. Now, none of these things are necessarily new in the 1920s and the 1930s, but they expand massively in this period to the point that the Locarno dance chain, the, the palais de dance, the Odeon cinema chain become absolutely ubiquitous across Britain in this period and it's often it's often these forms of entertainment that that provide our most striking images of the period what do they tell us about britain in the 1920s and the 1930s they tell us about the really really intimate relationship between new forms of mass culture and money so leisure becomes a massive commercial opportunity for investors and entrepreneurs it does so because if you're in a job in the 1920s, the 1930s, your real income is usually quite good. 
there's an increase in disposable income if you're in a job, and there's an increase in leisure time, again, with the proviso that you're in a job. So they tell us something about the growing emphasis, or the growing possibilities of leisure in the 20s and 30s. They tell us something about how leisure and having fun becomes big business. So how what is a source of excitement for ordinary men and women is a source of profit for others. They give us a way of thinking about the kind of hedonism of the period. And maybe in particular also about how the 1920s and the 1930s is a kind of point of origin, a point, a moment at which many of the forms of mass culture that we take for granted today come into being. Like if we're trying to understand our contemporary obsession with celebrity, for example, then really we we need to be looking at the 1920s, the 1930s, the development of the mass, the big cinema chains, the popularity of cinema going, the popularity of Hollywood movies, the emergence of new forms of celebrity and star culture that are sustained in turn by advertising or cinema film magazines or gossip magazines. So it's a re- that's a really interesting question. And I wonder, I mean, maybe the answer that I'd go for in the end is that the popularity of these forms of leisure tells us something about how forms of forms of modern life and modern culture that we take for granted really came into being in the decades after the Great War. Could you give us a, a, just a few names, not, not necessarily much detail, but if people want to know, you know, go research the celebrities of this era, who are a few names you think people should be looking at here? Oh, interesting celebrities. Oh, Jesse Matthews is the, 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 the music, musical star, is a really, really good one. Gracie Fields, um, the British film star from, from Lancashire. Um, all good places to start. Um, if you're interested in, in some of the figures from Hollywood, Theda Barra, Clara Bow, Anna Mae Wong, all of these are kind of are wonderful celebrities with kind of rich and interesting stories. Great stuff. Well, if we can sort of pivot then to, to the other side of things, you've already touched on how the roaring 20s is often something associated with this period, but is, you know, a bit of a misnomer, really. I know you've written for our website on this very subject. Um, we got a question from Miss Jed Owens on Instagram. Uh, how roaring were the roaring 20s for, quote, ordinary folks in Britain? Yeah, that's a really good question. We make this distinction between the roaring 20s and the hungry 30s as though one decade is defined by hedonism and glamour and opportunity and the other is defined by austerity, poverty, short-time industrial unrest and brutal, brutal hardship. That's really misleading for many reasons, but in particular because particularly in Britain's industrial heartlands, the north of England, South Wales, Clydeside, the experience of the 1920s and the 1930s is defined by austerity, hardship, and and inequality. There is there's a really short-term economic boom in the immediate aftermath of the Great War. And then there's an economic crash. So already by 1920, unemployment is up at 2 million in Britain. And it will climb over the course of the 1920s and the 1930s. Now, the experience of unemployment and hardship is unevenly distributed across the country. There is a kind of collapse in middle-class incomes between 1918 and 1921 or 1922. But this is really short-lived. So this is a period characterised by poverty, by the struggle to make ends meet, 
so that by the 1930s, the early 1930s, after the crash of 1929 and the financial crisis of 1931, regions like South Yorkshire or Tyneside are characterised by long-term and mass unemployment. And there, the experience of the period is very, very different indeed. And how do we see the picture changing politically in response to these these conditions for many? We've got a question, we've got a few questions actually about communism in Britain during this period or how the, the picture changed politically for, you know, the, the main parties, I suppose. Can you say much about the responses there? There's a growing recognition in the 1920s and the 1930s that mass unemployment, distress, poverty, the problem of the distressed areas, as it becomes called, is an issue that needs addressing. It's partly an issue that needs addressing because working class people mobilise to make it a pressing issue through strikes, trade unions, hunger marches, and so on and so forth. It's partly an issue because of the way that the writings of authors like George Orwell and so on and so forth make poverty visible in this period that demand that the authorities take action. It's also an issue, I think, because of a bigger change in British politics after the Great War. I think one of the things that we often lose sight of is that the Representation of the People Act in 1918 enfranchises more working class men than it does women. And that means that the 1920s and the 1930s are really the period at which Britain Britain emerges as a genuinely modern mass democracy. But what that means is that working class men and women can vote. That makes them a constituency that needs to be that needs to be addressed, that needs to be supported, that needs to be provided for. Now, that's done imperfectly in the 1920s and the 1930s. But there's a growing awareness across the political spectrum on the importance of providing some kind of support or some kind of relief for those who are unemployed or in poverty in this period. I'm interested in your take on what we gain from seeing these two decades or disparate periods within this interwar period as distinct eras in and of themselves rather than bracketed by these two devastating conflicts. Increasingly, I don't really find it very useful to separate the 1920s and the 1930s. There are other interesting ways of other kinds of periodization for thinking about these decades. Certainly, there's a kind of moment between 1917, 1918 and 1923 that we can kind of characterize as a crisis point in British, European even, society, culture and politics. This is a moment at which the shift from war to peace economic collapse, revolution in Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, the spectacle of revolution and the fear of revolution in Britain and Ireland through race riots, the Irish War of Independence, through the insistent mobilisation of British trade unions. All of these things come together to create a real sense of crisis and uncertainty. And there are genuine fears in amongst the British establishment in this period, that society order as they know it is about to collapse. There are genuine fears of revolution in this period. Now, that doesn't come to pass. And the kind of the stabilisation of British politics and society is is both striking and also overstated afterwards. But we do need to think about that as one 
distinct period, I think. I suppose there's another useful way of breaking the period up, which isn't quite the same as distinguishing between the Roaring Twenties and the Hungry Thirties. But I think something shifts in 1929. Now, that's partly to do with the Wall Street crash, an economic crisis. But I think 1929 really is a point at which we might suggest that the aftermath of the Great War is over. That's partly because the war books boom, the influence of something like R.C. Sheriff's play, Journey's End, marks a shift in the way that the war is understood. It's partly because this is the first election at which women can vote on the same terms as men. And I think that that draws a line under some of the progressive social and political changes prompted by the war. This is also the moment, finally, when, when Britain's army of occupation is withdrawn from the Rhineland in Germany. So it's a moment of very genuine, a very real disengagement from a continental conflict that had begun in 1914. And I think after 1929, the mood sort of shifts. In the 1930s, again, I think this is, this is a period that has often been characterised by historians as lived in the shadow of the dictators. That depends upon a degree of hindsight that Britons at the time didn't have. But it's certainly by the time you get to the late 1930s, there is a new kind of impending sense of crisis on the horizon that is something very, very different from the 1920s. But you can see every sort of every way that I try and break down the break down the 1920s and 1930s into period, the breaks are not necessarily falling at either end, they're not necessarily falling at the kind of the artificial marker of a decade. They're, they're smaller scale periodizations that only work for if we're thinking about some topics and not about others. Yes, that, that makes total sense and has really, really come out in all that you've been saying. Um, one thing we haven't talked about so much, which I suppose does lend itself to that periodization is the monarchy and sort of one monarch leading to another. Can we characterise any response to monarchy in this time, how they're viewed after the Great War versus going into obviously new decades or and a, and a new conflict at the end of the period? The, the monarchy is a really, really good example of the process that I've been talking about. In the immediate aftermath of the Great War, the British royal family are anxiously watching their, their relatives in other European royal families fall from power and in many cases um, meet with a very grisly fate. And there is a genuine sense in the royal household that the aftermath of war, trade union politics, what they see as the spectre of socialism, and Britain's remaking as a modern mass democracy with a new newly empowered electorate, there's a very real sense that that marks a crisis for these older forms, traditional forms of power, traditional political and social elites. So the monarchy feels there is a mood within the royal household of being embattled in this period. What's really interesting is the response of the monarchy to that sense of crisis. There is, there's a growing emphasis within the royal household on what we might think of now as forms of public relations. The royal household has a press officer for the first time from 1918 to 1931. They are very, very, very keen to control the way in which the monarchy is represented in newspapers, newsreels and in print. And that kind of extends from giving privileged access to some journalists and some biographers and not others, to briefing journalists, 
to giving journalists privileged access on royal tours of the empire, but also to using to using threats and behind the scenes contacts with editors or publishers to suppress stories about the monarchy or biographies of the monarchy that they see as somehow damaging or threatening. So we see a lot in the 1920s about, there's a great emphasis on the philanthropy of the British royal family, of Edward, the Prince of Wales, sympathy for unemployed miners and their family, for example, the idea that something must be done. There's a lot of emphasis in newspapers and periodicals on the ordinariness of the British royal family, of how you know the birth of Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret marks the process through which the royal family are democratised. There's a lot of talk about how in their private lives the monarchy are just like ordinary Britons. They have the kind of same values, the same sense of what's important, and so on and so forth. I think these things are interesting because... This emphasis on philanthropy, ordinariness, and privacy. That's really interesting because these are all, you know, this is a kind of political strategy. This is an attempt to secure support, to secure the legitimacy of the British monarchy, not through set-piece ritual or prerogative power, but by, by manipulating new forms of mass culture and mass communication. There are really good examples about the royal household are very keen to embrace the possibilities of the wireless, for example, the introduction of the King's Speech in the early 1930s. And I suppose what that makes interesting is how, from a starting point in which the monarchy seems embattled, they are both enormously ruthless and enormously successful in securing their social and cultural and political position. So by the end of the 1930s, even after the scandal of Edward VIII's abdication over the kind of concerns called the question of his remarriage to Wallace Simpson, even after that, that scandal, by the end of the 1930s, commentators on the left, um, like Kingsley Martin, editor of The New Statesman, are really surprised to note what they see as the unexpectedly enduring popularity of the British monarchy. The expectation in the 1920s on the left is that the monarchy is an anachronistic institution that has no future in a modern mass democracy and a modern mass culture. But by the 1930s, that sense of optimism in those quarters has gone completely. And it's obvious that despite the challenges of this period, that the monarchy has really secured its position in public life very effectively indeed. It's so fascinating um, hearing all of those factors and obviously some parallels there as well, which I'm sure listeners will be will be picking up on for sure. I fear we might be having to wrap this up. It, it's been so fascinating, Matt. And for, for all the questions we've received, thank you so much. There's been a bit of an overlap. So sorry if your question didn't get a dedicated shout out, but we tried to incorporate as many as possible. Uh, and Matt, for anyone who um, perhaps didn't get their question answered or want to know even more about this period, can you recommend any any next steps or further reading or perhaps um, your, your own projects, things people would want to check out um yeah of course i mean there's lots of there are lots of interesting resources on the website of the national archives at the moment prompted by the launch of the 1921 census online earlier this year and that's early last year sorry now and that's a really interesting place to start if you wanted to read my own idiosyncratic take on 
the 1920s and the 1930s, told through the story of an international confidence trickster, man of mystery and royal biographer, then, and this is, I guess, a good time to plug my book, uh, The Prince of Tricksters, The Incredible True Story of Nellie Lucas, Gentleman Crook. That's a book about a flamboyant, larger-than-life figure in many ways, but it's also also my attempt to use, use Nellie Lucas as a way of thinking about the period as a whole. Um, there's an audible podcast series, uh, Stephen Fry's Secrets of the 1920s, which is excellent. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I think we've uh, also had the unexpected take on the Edwardians, which was, I think, a Stephen Fry one that they that was on the podcast as well. So I'm sure that will interest listeners for sure. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, well, wonderful. Matt, thank you so much. Is, is there anything else before we wrap up that you would like to highlight about this this uh, Britain in the interwar period for, for our listeners today? I think I've talked more than long enough. (laughs) Not at all. It's been fascinating. And Matt, thank you so much for your time and joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That was Matt Holbrook, Professor of Cultural History at the University of Birmingham. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. (laughs) 